Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Just off the leafy campus of an Ivy League college, a scene of grisly and toxic dumping. We dug until we uncovered a bag. When we opened it, we could see the remains of a decomposing animal. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll investigate contaminated water and its link to lab experiments from decades ago. We'll also explore another contamination site and meet a man who has to wear a hazmat suit to enter his house. Clothing, baby toys that are in there. Look at the paperwork, how moldy that is. Our reporter investigates one of the biggest builders in New England. We'll also sit down with the creators of the hit podcast, Crime Town, about Providence, Rhode Island, and their hardworking mayor who ran the city for 20 years. Looking for problems, solving problems. There's a, is there a problem with my city? Turns out one of the problems was the mayor's link to organized crime. And we'll hear voices from the series Words in Transit, introducing us to immigrants who've made Western New England home. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, meet New England's most notorious gangster, and it isn't Whitey Bulger. He'd walk up and down Atwell's Avenue. He would talk to everybody. Anybody needed anything, they would get it. He never hurt. He took care of more people than he hurt. But first, two stories of contamination and the homeowners who are affected. We'll start in Hanover, New Hampshire, near the campus of Dartmouth College. It's the scene of a macabre burial site where lab animals and the chemicals that were used on them were dumped by researchers in the 1960s and 70s. Now a toxic chemical, 1,4-dioxane, has shown up in the groundwater of nearby homeowners. Vermont Public Radio reporter Rebecca Sinanis has been covering this story, and she joins us now. Welcome to Next. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us about this chemical. What exactly is it? So it's been identified as a probable carcinogen, meaning it's been found to cause cancer in animals, but there aren't sufficient studies on its effects on humans to label it an official carcinogen, like, let's say, tobacco. Okay, so it's one of those chemicals, like many, that's sort of in a gray area. Um, Maybe you can tell me about where it came into use, how common it was. Yeah, so it's a solvent, and it's actually still used in commercial products like glue and paint thinners. Uh, At the Hanover contamination, 1,4-dioxane was used as scintillation fluid. It's a conduit used to study radiation. How exactly is this chemical regulated? Well, actually, just a couple weeks ago, the Environmental Protection Agency announced that they'll be studying the health effects of 1,4-dioxane in the next couple years and regulating it in commercial products accordingly. Um, But in drinking water, different states have different thresholds for what's acceptable in drinking water. So in New Hampshire, where the contamination is, that's three parts per billion. But in neighboring Massachusetts, it's 0.3 parts per billion. So this is one of those many chemicals in, in which the amount that's safe to consume in drinking water is set at the state level, not through any federal oversight. That's right, at least right now. So tell us how it got into the groundwater in and around the school. So in the 1960s and 70s, Dartmouth was using this plot of land known as Rennie Farm to bury lab refuse. 
But Dartmouth says only about half an acre was used for burials. There were radioactive animal carcasses, human cadavers and fetuses, broken bottles and syringes in this plot. Okay, so they were doing a lot of stuff that sounds, I don't know, pretty creepy. What exactly were they doing with all this research material, all these fetuses and animals and human cadavers? Yeah, it's not exactly clear what they were studying, but we do know that they were trying to track how radioactivity moves through animals' bodies. Um, It is worth noting that George Stibitz, who's famously credited with developing some of the first computers, worked at Dartmouth during this time and is reported to have spent time monitoring this area during the dumping. He warned several neighbors that the Rennie farm site would prove problematic in the future, but he died in the mid-1990s. So why did Dartmouth decide to excavate the property and, and, and find all of this, this stuff? Yeah, so in 2011, Dartmouth actually wanted to sell the property and decided to excavate the refuse to release it from state regulations. But the records of what was buried there was fairly incomplete. The company that excavated used a hand-drawn map from the 1960s and 70s to find the buried materials. So lo and behold, there was far more refuse buried in the plot than records had shown. Uh, Here's Charles Watts, the president of the excavation company, back in August 2016, telling a crowd of neighbors what he saw. We dug at what we thought was one of the plots until we uncovered a bag. That bag was a thick, black, plastic bag. And when we opened it, we could see the remains of a decomposing animal on the inside. Looking at that first bag, I recognized that we were going to have a difficult time in sampling this material and coming up with a way to defend uh, any results that might show that this is non-radioactive. So according to the excavation company's report, one of the plots filled with water with a deep purple sheen and a strong solvent smell. The workers couldn't tell if they had retrieved all the refuse from the site. It's also hypothesized that this excavation disturbed the land where the 1,4-dioxane had been seeping into the ground and pushed the chemical deeper into the groundwater runoff. Uh, Despite this, the state declared the site clean, although it was later found that there was more hazardous material left in the plot, which was excavated this past summer, five years later. So what, Rebecca, do we exactly know about how this is affecting people in the area? If this is in their groundwater, what's the effect? So Dartmouth starts monitoring the groundwater after the excavation to make sure it's not moving. And of course it is. Uh, To give you a visual, the Rennie farm plot is at the top of a steep marshy hill, directly downhill as a small neighborhood. In the summer of 2015, they find 1,4-dioxane at 520 parts per billion, which is hundreds of times above the state allotted limit for 1,4-dioxane, within uh, 800 feet distance from a drinking well. In this rural area, each home has their own dug well. It was found in a resident's house, Debbie and Richard Higgins. Debbie Higgins described some symptoms she and her husband had experienced in the year prior to finding out their water was contaminated. I was having some vertigo. It felt like water was in my left ear constantly, and every time I tipped my head up, I would get dizzy. So when I went for my yearly exam, I mentioned that to my doctor, and she looked at my ear like there's nothing clogging it up. She sees nothing in there. When we started drinking the bottled water, within two weeks, I had absolutely no symptoms whatsoever, and I haven't had any since. The Higgins also claim to have had skin lesions and skin peeling in their mouths. Their dog was urinating blood, which also stopped when the bottled water arrived. Since then, Dartmouth has been doing testing all over the neighborhood, trying to track the 1,4-dioxane plume. It's been found in at least one other neighbor's drinking water nearly a mile away from the original site and in another private property. It's also been found in several local streams, but over 100 wells have been tested negative for the chemical. 
Okay, so it's it's affected the Higgins family. Have have you heard from other families that have reported health problems like these? Because these sound pretty serious. So only two families have been found to be actually drinking this 1,4-dioxane, and Dartmouth has provided them with bottled water and a filtration system. Uh, but other neighbors have expressed deep concern about their property being devalued as they're in such close proximity to the contamination, and that hasn't exactly been worked out yet. Hmm. So, so what is happening now, and, and how is the cleanup happening? Yeah, so at the end of October, the Higgins threatened to sue Dartmouth if the school refused to relocate them. Under the Federal Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, the school has 90 days from the date of notification to either comply with the Higgins' demands, or the EPA or state could come in and take over the case, or the Higgins themselves will sue Dartmouth for damages. Dartmouth still has not complied, but has until the end of January to do so without being taken to court. Tony Roisman, who is also a lawyer defending people in the Woburn, Massachusetts cancer cluster, which resulted in the book and movie A Civil Action, is one of the lawyers working on the Dartmouth case. In addition to relocating the Higgins family, this is what Roisman says Dartmouth must address. Dartmouth needs to do a comprehensive, thorough investigation of what it dumped, when it dumped it, where it dumped it, what happened to it after it was dumped, including a thorough groundwater study. And once they get all of that information and thoroughly understand the magnitude of the problem, then to implement a cleanup that addresses the full extent of the problem. They've done none of that. So, Rebecca, what is Dartmouth doing now? What's next? So Dartmouth is now putting in place what's called a pump-and-treat system at the Rennie Farm site to clean up the source of 1,4-dioxane. They're hoping that will at least stop the added flow to the plume, but it won't reach as far as the contaminated properties. Uh, The way it works is the groundwater is sucked up into a filtration system, the 1,4-dioxane is filtered out, and then it's washed back into the groundwater stream. So that system is supposed to be in place by the end of the month, and Dartmouth expects the 1,4-dioxane should be clean in about five years, although they have said that could be longer. I can imagine that Dartmouth College isn't the only school in the country that was doing tests like this using this same chemical. So is it possible that there are burial sites like this that could be leaching chemicals into groundwater elsewhere in the country? Yeah. So before the 1980s, there wasn't really a waste management industry. And this type of burial of hazardous waste Dartmouth did was pretty standard. So a lot of institutions are dealing with similar problems. Cornell University, University of Arizona, and UC Davis, to name a few. Each university has said that burying material in this way was standard at the time. Rebecca, I find this story so interesting because we've covered a lot of instances of companies, corporations, dumping chemicals into a river or not disclosing toxic materials that they're burning and then settle down into uh, lakes and streams and later make their way into groundwater. And there's always a a tension, right, between people's right to live someplace and and the company's right, they believe, to, to use a chemical that's maybe not been regulated by the EPA But this is a different story somehow because you're dealing with an Ivy League institution. You're dealing with uh, essentially people who who should know better than to to put dangerous chemicals into the ground. When you talk to people about this this story, is there something different about this contamination than than maybe if it was a, a big company polluting the ground? Well, it's actually fascinating because this is a Hanover neighborhood where a lot of the people living there are actually either Dartmouth alumni 
Dartmouth professors now or or notable members of the Dartmouth community. So I think the, the residents are having a lot of tension where there's a high regard for Dartmouth in the area and uh, people really care about the institution. But I think they feel really hurt. Interestingly enough, Tony Roisman, who I mentioned earlier is one of the lawyers, is actually an alumni of Dartmouth College. So I think there is a major tension here in terms of revering the institution. And and I, I think people are also disappointed. Rebecca Sinanis is a reporter for Vermont Public Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll move now to another type of contamination linked not to an Ivy League college, but to one of New England's biggest developers. Brady Sullivan Properties has, to put it mildly, had a pretty bad couple of years. They've made the news after state and federal investigations into lead contamination and illegal dumping of asbestos. And those are just the cases that made headlines. In recent years, there have been other complaints involving Brady Sullivan projects from homeowners and others. Regulators haven't taken a comprehensive look at all these incidents to see if there's a pattern at play, but New Hampshire Public Radio's Jack Rodolico has been looking into it, and he gives us this report. Dan Krim is zipping himself into a hazmat suit. He's in his garage covering every inch of skin before he sets foot inside his home. I never thought I was going to be in a situation like this. Yet here he is. He puts on goggles, gloves, a respirator, and steps inside. A smoke alarm with a dead battery beeps in the stairwell. That's just one of the signs Dan Krim abandoned this home. It's a one-story, pale yellow, prefab house in a Laconia subdivision where all the houses look the same. And when they bought the place from Brady Sullivan Properties in 2010, the house was just built. But the Krims say they noticed a huge crack in the foundation. You can see everywhere I turn, I can be able to look and I can be able to see it. The basement flooded when it rained. Moisture built up in the house, and mold and yeast sprouted everywhere. My uniforms, my dress blues that I was handing down to my son. We got tubs of Christmas items, clothing, baby toys that are in there. Look at the paperwork, how moldy that is. Dan Krim says the mold made him, his wife, and son sick. Chronic colds, memory loss. They sued Brady Sullivan and fled the house. When I retired from the military, all I wanted to do was settle down. We trusted, you know, we had a prominent builder. A few weeks after this interview, the Crims and Brady Sullivan settled the lawsuit for undisclosed terms. But five years ago, complaints from homeowners in this subdivision, which is called Paugus Woods, caught the attention of the New Hampshire Department of Justice. The state hired an engineer, and when the engineer inspected about 40 brand new homes, he found 450 code violations. Attorney David Rienzo with the Justice Department says Brady Sullivan had advertised the homes as up to code. Because that was not true, because that is a promise that was made to the public and a promise that was broken, that provided us with the legal rationale for taking action against Brady Sullivan in this matter. Taking action meant the attorney general, the state's top law enforcement agent, sued one of the state's biggest developers. That lawsuit filed in 2011 stated the safety problems in Paugus Woods were so severe it, quote, may indicate a pattern by the builder to ignore building codes. 
That suit was ultimately settled, but over the past five years, complaints have popped up at more Brady Sullivan buildings across New England. State and federal regulators say the developer is responsible for mishandling toxins. Tenants and homeowners say they moved into homes with health and safety hazards. Laborers say they weren't paid for the work they did. Marcus Hearn is a land development scholar at the UNH School of Law. He says scattered complaints against a big developer, they wind up in front of city, state, and federal regulators who each only deal with individual parts of the developer's business, like public health, workers' rights, consumer protection. It's a little like the blind man and the elephant. You know, some people have got a piece of tail, another bit of trunk, (laughs) a tusk. If there's anything serious that needs to be done, somebody needs to get a bigger chunk of the elephant. Shane Brady and Arthur Sullivan, Brady Sullivan Properties' founders, declined an interview for this story. In an email, the company's attorney denied all the claims made by consumers. Since 1992, Brady Sullivan has built thousands of units of middle-income housing across New Hampshire, plus luxury condos and apartments in Vermont, Florida, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. And a lot of the complaints against Brady Sullivan stem from the smaller contractors it hires to do construction and demolition. One of those problematic contractors is Environmental Compliance Specialists Incorporated, or ECSI. I'm Jesse Wright, and uh, I own 111 Main LLC, which also houses uh, ECSI. Back in May, the planning board in Kingston, New Hampshire, called this contractor in to testify about whether he was using his land legally. There is no asbestos. You don't keep asbestos on site there. No. Okay. Regulators say ECSI has broken city, state, and federal laws while working for Brady Sullivan. In 2015, the EPA concluded that ECSI spread lead dust into apartments while sandblasting at Mill West, a Brady Sullivan development in Manchester. A few months later, state and federal regulators investigated a tip ECSI allegedly drove toxic debris from Mill West to another Brady Sullivan housing development in Massachusetts and then buried the toxic debris in a basement. I, I adhere to the regulations. That's all I have to do. While public health regulators have sanctioned ECSI for its work at Mill West, labor regulators are looking for another Mill West contractor who allegedly refused to pay workers. In the parking lot of Mill West, I met up with a woman named Delmi. According to a complaint she filed with the New Hampshire Department of Labor, Delmi says she, her husband, and son were hired by a contractor to install drywall at this apartment, which is owned by Brady Sullivan. She says the contractor is refusing to pay her family. We agreed to not publish the family's last name because they're undocumented immigrants from El Salvador. Delmi's son, Christian, translates. Yes, they haven't paid us in a while. Um, They owe us $20,000. $20,000? Yes. Regulators from Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts have gotten similar complaints from laborers who say they weren't paid by contractors working on Brady Sullivan job sites. So all these complaints about toxic dumping, unpaid wages, living in unsafe homes, they've led to regulatory actions against Brady Sullivan or its contractors. There have been lawsuits and settlements. Regulators have forced cleanups and told contractors to write checks to unpaid workers. But regulators haven't looked at 
all these complaints together to see if there's a pattern, as the state suggested in its 2011 lawsuit. I asked Attorney General Joe Foster, whose office filed that suit, what he made of all this, and he was noncommittal. It may well be um, wise for us to take a look at this, but I really can't comment on it until we take a, a deep dive. I don't think that would be fair to Brady Sullivan. In the meantime, the AG says, buyers beware. The uh, consumer should do research into who they're buying their products from. Trouble is, while much of Brady Sullivan's record is public, it's not accessible to the average home buyer. You'd have to seek information from a dozen city, county, state, and federal agencies to get a glimpse of the big picture. That's Jack Rodolico of New Hampshire Public Radio reporting. ECSI, one of the contractors in the story, has filed for bankruptcy, and now labor regulators are looking at another contractor that allegedly refused to pay workers. Coming up, a crusading politician, the biggest mobster in New England, and the town they both called home. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. So if you live in a city, you appreciate it when your mayor is a hard worker. I remember uh, leaving work sometimes late at night and the lights were still on down in the mayor's office. He was looking for problems, solving problems. There's a, is there a problem with my city? That city employee, Paul Campbell, talking about Buddy Cianci, the former mayor of Providence, Rhode Island. An Italian Republican in a city formerly controlled by Irish Democrats, Cianci loved Providence, and Providence loved him back. Buddy also loved publicity, letting people know he loved Providence. It was said he would come to the opening of an envelope. But Cianci later admitted that in order to get elected, he had to make arrangements. Arrangements, that is, with organized crime. It's just the beginning of a stranger-than-fiction tale that unfolds in the first season of the new podcast, Crime Town. Right now, it's the number one podcast in America. Hosts Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier know how to tell a crime story. They were behind the HBO series The Jinx. We caught up with them to talk about the story of how Providence became the center of organized crime in New England and how the city has changed. Mark and Zach, welcome to Next. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hello. First of all, why did you pick Providence as the first location for your new show? Um, I have history in Providence. I married a woman, uh, an Italian girl from the Federal Hill area. She's from Smith Street, actually, which is another hill, uh, but very close. Through her father, I had met Buddy Cianci years ago when I was in college, and uh, I had become sort of a fan of Buddy's, and I watched very closely as he went through his uh, trials and tribulations. How willing were people to talk to you about this time and these characters, uh, knowing that, that some time had passed, certainly, but, but, you know, there's a lot of people who are tangled up in some pretty dicey stuff. I mean, did you find Providence opening their doors to you, or did you have a lot of doors sh shut in your face? Well, we had a lot of doors shut in our face, but, um, you know, we stuck in, we, we started this two years ago, um, right after the jinx aired basically within a couple months. And we just started doing audio recordings with people. We started with a guy named Bill Malinowski, who's a, um, f you know, sort of renowned criminal, uh, reporter, crime reporter up at the Providence Journal. 
And uh, he introdu- introduced us to uh, Charles the Ghost Kennedy, who is a, uh, a guy who was part of Wimet's clan under Patriarcha uh, as a young man and then became his own guy and, and was, ended up being uh, uh, arrested for drug dealing and did 16 years. And he uh, sort of introduced us to some more people. And it just took time, you know. I mean, you come to a story at a certain time in its evolution and uh, and it'll open up to you. And this story of Providence in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, up until the end of Buddy in 2000 with Plunderdome, it, it was the time for it to be told, I think. And people recognized that. Charles Mancellillo spoke to us, you know, Paul Campbell, people in Buddy's administration. And Buddy was going to speak to us. Hmm. Why do you think it was the time to tell this story? What, what was it about the, the evolution that made this a, a ripe time? Well, things have changed in Providence. You know, uh, the ethnic culture of Providence has changed. Providence has become more transparent about how it's governed. I think Providence right now has the most comprehensive ethics laws. They just voted in an ethics commission, I think. So, you know, things have really changed and people have changed. And I think that the recognition of that is, uh, is important and people wanted to talk about it. And then from the organized crime side of things, that's, you know, obviously that's still going on to some extent, but nowhere near the level that it was going on during the time that we're covering in the show. So we've talked a bit about Buddy Cianci, and we're going to hear more of his story, but maybe you can explain to our listeners who don't know exactly who Raymond Patriarca was. Raymond Patriarca was kind of, I, I, I kind of think of him as the model for the original Godfather for Marlon Brando. He was very quiet, very understated, but he was the most powerful mob boss on the East Coast and arguably one of the most powerful mob bosses in the country. His reach went, you know, from Bible factories in the Midwest to Las Vegas. He had relationships with the New York families. He had relationships, obviously, in Boston. He, he had a stronghold on New England, but he was also on the commission you know, the commission of the of the families that sort of run the organized crime across the country. He was very well respected. I mean, I think what's fascinating about him is that people don't know about him. They hear about Whitey Bulger. They hear about other gangsters that have became more infamous. But uh, above all those guys was a guy named Raymond Patriarca. And that wasn't by accident. That was by design. I mean, he didn't he wasn't flashy like John Gotti. He didn't he didn't like his picture in the paper so much. You know, he was sort of operating under the radar. Um, And so that was very calculated. And he was also much, much loved in that neighborhood and in the city. I want to play a little clip from a a longtime resident of Federal Hill. His name is uh, Albert Berducci. He'd walk up and down Atwell's Avenue. He would talk to everybody. Anybody need anything, they would get it. I'm not saying they would buy them houses or cars or anything else, but I mean, you know, somebody was in need of a few bucks, he would make sure that, hey, you got a tank of oil or a food basket for Thanksgiving. He never hurt. He took care of more people than he hurt. That's one of my favorite parts of the show, that long pause (laughs) after he says he never hurt. And, and then and then he, he corrects what he was going to say. But you heard that from a lot of people. People really love this man. What do they love about him? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, it's the same with Buddy, right? I mean, both these men were huge personalities in Rhode Island and Providence in particular. And, um, and they had their dark side and their light side. And I think Raymond 
did help people. And before there was um, the rule of law in Federal Hill, when it was an Italian neighborhood with immigrants mostly, and the Irishmen were the police and the courts and, you know, were running the city, the Italians felt like they needed their own system of justice, their own political system. And Raymond stepped in and he provided a lot of security. So you could walk down Atwell's Avenue and you could, you know, keep your doors unlocked without any fear. Um, and I think Raymond was was sort of a powerful figure that way. And, and people people liked him personally, too. He was very avuncular. He was a very um, fatherly figure. So on the other side of the story, you have this young prosecutor who later becomes mayor. His name is, is Buddy Cianci. What, what's the first time these two really, really interact? It's, it's told early on in your series, and it's a, it's a really foundational piece in, in how we understand Providence over the course of the next couple decades. Yeah, well, Buddy was a young prosecutor, you know, just starting out in his career. And in you know, 1972, there was a, a new trial for Raymond Patriarca, and uh, he was charged with the conspiracy to commit murder. And Buddy was one of the prosecutors on that case, and so they they tangled on that case, sort of as as adversaries, and that sets up um, this struggle for the soul of the city. You know, I mean, these two guys sort of go head to head for for many years to come. And of course, Buddy Cianci, as a, as a Republican, uh, was going head to head not just against a, a, a crime boss and his machine, but also against the the Democratic machine. Uh, we're going to play a clip in a moment, but maybe you can talk about some of the characters and and the way Providence was run before Buddy came into office. Well, you know, Democratic machine is not it's not just a thing of Providence. It was a machine that really controlled a lot of the cities on the East Coast and. Um, it was mostly run by Irish Democrats from immigrant families who had pushed uh, the wasps, so to speak, out of government and had taken over. And um, it was a patronage system. And uh, everybody looked after each other, particularly in a state like Rhode Island, which is so small, where everybody sort of knows everybody. It's very easy to fall into patronage where you're giving friends and family jobs. And then that quickly becomes you know, hey, I got to get reelected. So you get people to vote for me and I'll make sure that your cousin gets a job too. So there was a tremendous amount of fat or pork in the government. And Buddy came into that government at a time when it was just about to topple over. I just want to play a quick piece of tape. Uh, this is uh, a man named Larry McGarry, one of the, the characters who, who are part of that time. McGarry was the party chairman and a legend in Providence. He used a wheelchair to get around, and he operated out of a small, smoke-filled back room in the Public Works Department. He was arguably the most powerful man in the city. They called him Mr. Democrat. Larry McGarry was the guy that ran, basically, Public Works, and the old story was that before you talked to him, he had a little cigar box on his desk. You had to make a contribution in the cigar box before you talked to him. (laughs) And there were bunches of guys like this, and so when, when Buddy runs, he runs knowing that this is the system, knowing he's got to play as part of the system, but he also runs a kind of anti-corruption campaign. Talk about how he, he balanced these two things, wanting to be a crusader against the system, but then needing to work as part of the system if he, if he was even going to get elected. I think Buddy was very clever at that time, and he saw, he saw an opening. And what was going on within the Democratic Party during his first run for mayor was that they were 
fighting each other. Larry McGarry was fighting Joe Dorley, the incumbent mayor. And Buddy recognized really quickly that he, there was a space for him um, after those two guys battle it out, that, that the person who lost would be his ally. And so he makes a deal with the Democratic machine, um, the, the very people that he's sort of publicly um, saying are, is part of the problem of the city. He makes a deal with those people to get elected. Here's a, a clip from uh, an interview you did with one of the mob enforcers you talked to. His name is Jerry Tillingast. I said, listen, here's the deal. There was four environmental control inspectors in the city of Providence. That was a good job. No, you get you go answer calls and stuff like this. You're on the road all the time. I said, I want two jobs, one for me and one for my partner Al. Between me and Al, we could grab 2,000 votes. That's big. He's okay. CNC said this. Yeah. And I says, I got your word on that. He said, yeah, it's okay. And this is one of the things, guys, that's so fascinating about your story is it, it seems as though this isn't a years-long process by which you have a mayor who slowly turns toward the criminal element and, and, and lets them in over time. Uh, this is a story in which it happens almost immediately, right? Well, this is always a question in people's mind, right? If, you, if you're listening to a politician, is he telling you something that you need to hear and you want to hear so he can get elected? Or is he actually telling you something that he really believes? And, um, and that's happening. <laughs> Certainly that's happened in the last presidential election. So, you know, this is not a new theme. I mean, Buddy was a powerful force. He was a big ego. And he, he wanted to get elected. And in the city of Providence at that time, he could not get elected without dealing with two things, the Democratic machine and fellas in organized crime from Federal Hill. And to d disregard those people was death. So he had to make deals on both sides. But that doesn't mean that both things can't be true. I think he did love the city, you know, and I think he did want to do good. And I think he I think both things are possible. Both things can be true. It's it's clear that that he loved the city. It's also clear it was important to him uh, that he was uh, part of the Italian-American community there. I want to play one last clip, and this is him speaking at the Republican National Convention in, in 1976, and he's, he's essentially taking on Jimmy Carter. Let's listen. For too long, ethnics have been treated as votes and statistics by democratic political machines that stifle their hopes, laughed at their ambitions, and scoffed at their dreams. Yes, our Republican ranks contain many of us who are proud that we come from Federal Hill in Providence, because it shall be from the cities and neighborhoods that Republicans, independents, yes, and even Democrats, with names that end in O and I, or Z or Ski, they're the ones who'll help us with the big win, because when we win the neighborhoods, we'll win in November. He's reacting there uh, in that speech to uh, Jimmy Carter using the word Italian, but clearly he's he's saying a lot more in there. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, this most recent election. I, I guess as you listen back to a speech like that, how many maybe echoes you hear of the type of populist politics we've we've heard in just the last year or so? Here's Buddy Cianci really trying to draw together a, a pretty broad demographic coalition of people who feel like they've been left behind in some way. Yeah. 
It's interesting, right? I mean, now we're we're uh, Trump is trying to bring the middle class white working the working class whites into the fold by making speeches, and Buddy was trying to bring immigrants to the Republican Party. But it's not it's not that different, right? Because Buddy was also making deals on the side with the very machine that that he uh, that he was sort of bemoaning there. And we'll see if Trump actually lives up to the to the rhetoric that he uh, that he spouted during his campaign. I mean, that'll be really interesting, right? I mean, Buddy did change a lot about Providence, but he didn't really change the Democratic machine. So I, I was in Providence not too long ago, uh, like a lot of people walking around downtown, going to little bars and restaurants, and, and it's beautiful. The, the, the city is just gorgeous, and it's been seen as a model for a lot of American cities of that size in, in, in how to redevelop and reimagine itself. Uh, obviously, there's, there's an awful lot of educational influence there with, with all the colleges, and there's a lot of young people, and that brings life to the streets. But I guess I just wonder, guys, as, as you talk to all these people about the impact that Buddy Cianci had, how much do people say that that's Buddy's town, that the providence that we have today is, is that way because of him or, or maybe in, in, in spite of his influence? I think in a city like that, it had been neglected, especially the Italian parts of town have been neglected for so long. Um, and the people had felt disenfranchised by government. And um, the machine just kept rolling over them. And Buddy represented a break in that, regardless of whether he actually broke it. He did, he did change things for Providence. And he brought a lot of federal money in. He fixed up downtown. As you said, downtown's beautiful. It worries me a little bit that I see a lot of empty stores, a lot of empty office buildings. One of those buildings, that huge building in the middle of town, is completely empty. Um, so, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done to attract people into the center of the city. But Buddy laid the foundation for success. A last thing for you guys. How much does, does your mind change when you work on a project like this and you, you, you have some great stories, maybe some great storytellers, but then you really dig in? Have your minds been changed about any of these characters, either on the, the political side or on the mob side? I think it's in a it's a constant conversation that we have with each other of of how how we're feeling about about any number of the characters and I think we're we're pretty in touch with that swing. These are these are very gray characters and they're good and they're bad and they're in between and I think we try not to judge them and we try to just tell the the story in in the most honest way we can. Yeah, it's hard not to wince every once in a while, particularly with Buddy. You know, every once in a while we'll listen to something that about Buddy or what Buddy says, and you'll kind of, you'll kind of, I like this guy, Buddy Ciancia. I don't want to feel like he's, he's, he's doing something wrong, but ultimately he did some wrong things. But those answers you just gave that, that really gets to why you guys like to tell crime stories. I mean, they're, these are really complex characters. Yeah. And the, and the stakes are very high. I mean, crime is the ultimate dramatic situation. Right. The stakes are extraordinarily high, sometimes life and death. So everybody's sort of reacting at a very high emotional level and for reasons that are sometimes difficult to discern. There's a lot of gray area in the characters um, that are in Crime Town. I mean, nobody's good. Nobody's bad. Everybody's sort of swinging back and forth from good to bad. And it's, you know, one of the one of the things we're we're aware of is that we're making you fall in love with mob enforcers who are funny 
and uh, and sort of charming. And we're making you fall in love with Buddy. Every every episode, you know, Buddy does something that you're a little like you wince at, but then you realize, God, he's he's so charismatic and so powerful as a person. And you got to give him a break because he's trying to do something good. You know, he's trying to change things. Well, uh, Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier, thanks so much for spending some time with us, and congratulations on Crime Town. It's a great show, and we're looking forward to hearing more. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Mark Smerling and Zach Stewart-Pontier are co-hosts and senior producers of Crime Town, a podcast from Gimlet Media. You can find links to Crime Town and a Buddy Cianci campaign video at our website, nextnewengland.org. And hey, our show has a podcast as well. You can just search for Next New England in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, we'll hear some voices of immigrants from the Words in Transit Project. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. New England Public Radio is out with a new book. Words in Transit, Stories of Immigrants is based on their oral history project of the same name. Words in Transit is stories from a diverse group of foreign-born Americans in western Massachusetts and northern Connecticut, all told in their own words. Next, producer Andrew Moraskin caught up with some of the contributors this week at a book launch event at the Hartford Public Library. George Anand Kingsley is an artist from the Ivory Coast. What are your, some of your favorite subjects? <laughs> it's peace. My favorite subject that I'm working on is peace. Peace in the spirit, peace in the human being. You know, because uh, I went through so much hot period of my life, so I needed now to calm down peace. The trouble in Kingsley's life began back in his home country. Here's part of his story from Words in Transit. So I was working at the university. I was having a good salary. I was having my own business, uh, interior decoration company. And uh, I was also uh, engaged in politics in my country. And uh, because of political problems that happened in my country after uh, an election, uh, there was a mess through the UN, uh, French government, there was a civil war in my country. And uh, I have to hide myself for two months. And when I came out, I was feeling weak, uh, tired and everything. And when I was able to go to see a doctor, they found out that I was having a kidney failure. I couldn't stay in my country because uh, there was uh, people when house arrests, people were targets. So I couldn't stay. My workshop uh, was burned. I couldn't stay. My salary was frozen. So I needed to go out of the country to continue doing my dialysis. Kingsley fled to Ghana. Several twists and turns later, he ended up in Hartford, Connecticut as a refugee. It was March 2013, and Kingsley says he had to start from scratch. You know, sometimes you have to forget who you are, really. What you built for 40 years, you have to forget it and start at fresh. And this is hard for so many people. Kingsley started out sketching portraits on the street, but it was the library that gave him his first big break in America. So when I came, the first thing I did is to ask, where's the culture center here? They told me there's a library. I said, let's go to the library, and I start making my life. So how influential do you think the library was for you? Very, very influential because uh, I was able to connect with people. I was able to 
to see that my world was not destroyed, my art world was not destroyed. That still people that saw the, the painting um, that I did in the past at the library say, but this is good. So it gave me a hope that many people in America would like my, my artworks. So really it gave me that boost. And the library became like a second family for me. Naomi Dasanayaka from Sri Lanka says the Hartford Library was a key stepping stone for her, too. Here's an excerpt from her words in transit story. I started my new life in Hartford, Connecticut, because one of my friends told me that there are ESL classes at the Hartford Public Library. So straight I went to the Hartford Public Library, and I asked, I want to take classes at library. Next day, they called me. That Wednesday, I went to the library and I think I put my first step to achieve my goals. Dasanayaka and her family moved to the U.S. for better economic opportunities. Before coming to Hartford, they lived in Westfield, Massachusetts for about a year. But she says she was hiding. I found a place to hide myself, I mean, behind my husband because I didn't have good English. <laughs> Once at the Hartford Library, Dasanayaka took an English test and found out that her English was too advanced for the basic level classes the library offered. But she volunteered helping basic level students and took ESL elsewhere. Now she's pursuing a degree in early childhood education at Capital Community College. I constantly kept pinching myself uh, that I am here, that we are here that I feel the luckiest person on earth to be able to live here. That's Veronica Vida, a yoga teacher from Romania. She didn't immigrate to make more money or to flee a conflict, but under communism, Vida had to live with strict government control. While she was working as an English teacher, something happened that made her realize she wanted to get out. Here's what she told Words in Transit. I was... Um, asked to lead a delegation of um, Romanian uh, officials from uh, my hometown to Holland. So I prepared all the things necessary for this trip. And um, my my director, which here translates into a principal of the high school, they were proud that I was chosen to go and uh, lead the delegation. And just a couple of weeks before uh, leaving, I was called to um, the police office and I was uh, asked if I had relatives to the West. I had relatives in France, my mother's brother. By that time, I had relatives in Israel. It would have been a very frightening thing, but the head of the police in this town was a gentleman. He explained that uh, they cannot give me a, a passport to lead this delegation. And so I went home. And I told my family that we are leaving. Vida believed that she and her family would always be second-class citizens in Romania because they were Jews. So she applied for an exit visa for her family. They received one in about a year. Vida says she enjoys the freedom to practice Jewish traditions in America, 
even though she doesn't consider herself religious. I don't belong to a synagogue in particular, but I sometimes go to some events that are wonderful, music and stuff like that. Um, my children, we celebrate the Passover because it's a beautiful dinner where I get to make all the good food, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so is Rosh Hashanah. So, so that's amazing because that I didn't have in Romania, of course, as you realize that there was no religion. I asked Vida, as someone who lived under autocratic rulers, whether she's concerned by some of the rhetoric coming from President-elect Donald Trump. I never dreamed that communism is going to fall in my lifetime. I never thought that. I also never dreamed that this can happen here. However, there is a huge difference. The difference is this. Um, you can speak up. You can talk about it. It can be corrected. George Anand Kingsley, who we heard from earlier, also has an interesting perspective on Trump, based on his experience in the Ivory Coast. He says that Trump's unwillingness to engage in nation-building might be a good sign. I'm happy that uh, the new president-elect in America said that he's stopping that overthrowing, doing coup d'etat of other countries. This is very perfect, because if you stop that, the refugee also will stop coming to your country. So are you optimistic about Donald Trump? I hope. I hope. That was Next producer Andrew Moraskin reporting. You can listen to all the stories from Words in Transit at nepr.net slash words in transit. And there's a link where you can find a copy of the book on our website, nextnewengland.org. Proceeds from the book will go toward a scholarship for an immigrant student at Holyoke Community College. Stay tuned for our upcoming series, Facing Change, exploring New England's changing identity and the role that immigration is playing in our region. It starts next week. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moresk. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our theme music is composed by Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.